Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. My guest today is Cass Sunstein. In his best-selling book, Nudge, with economist Richard Thaler, he proposed an elegant way to influence human behavior. It showed how subtle psychological prods can shape everyday choices we make. These nudges promised to improve decisions about health, wealth and happiness, from prompting us to pay our taxes on time to getting shoppers to buy more fruit and vegetables. It's a potentially powerful tool for governments trying to guide the decisions of citizens, a process Sunstein has seen firsthand. He worked as advisor to President Obama and briefly under President Trump too. Now he teaches at Harvard. But in his latest book, On Freedom, Sunstein argues that nudging isn't enough. We need a GPS for life to help navigate us to our desired destination. So this week, does freedom need guidance? Cass Sunstein, welcome to The Economist Asks. Hello, Anne. It is great to be here. The cover of your book has a street sign, lots of white arrows on a green background, a sort of American highway sign, and they're bending and pointing in different directions. It's an image of confusion or perhaps a comment on freedom of choice. Why are you so down on freedom of choice that you find it confusing? Oh, I'm actually very enthusiastic about freedom of choice. So the book is, in a way, a song of enthusiasm for freedom of choice. That's essential in societies that aspire to respect their citizens. It's also pretty good for well-being because people usually know what's best for them. Not always, but usually. The thing I think we need to put a spotlight on is that the uh, existence of freedom of choice, while essential, is not enough, that people often find it very challenging to figure out how to get where they want to go. And that's uh, the image on the cover of the book, which is sometimes you want to be healthy or you want to find good education for your kid or you want to actually navigate the roads and you need something like a GPS. And that is freedom promoting. So let's talk about the idea of a GPS that would help us get where we want to go in life. What makes us assume that people acting freely in what is, after all, a free society and a democracy don't themselves collectively make choices that make their lives go better anyway? Well, they may on average, but if you lived in you know, a remote area or even not that a remote area before the invention of the GPS, uh, navigating uh, a location could be very challenging and that could diminish your freedom. If you land in an airport in a country that's not familiar to you and the airport is poorly designed, its architecture is baffling, let's say, or in one language and it's not yours, you may get lost and you're not really free to choose at least in a way that helps you get to your own preferred destination if the airport looks like that. In poor countries in particular, people often, whether the issue involves finding a doctor or finding clean water 
or finding a way to navigate, let's say, an educational system don't have uh, the equivalent of a GPS. And to that extent, they're less free, which isn't a knock on them. They may be completely amazing, but figure out how to handle a bureaucracy may be really tough. Uh, in the UK and in the United States, two countries which in many ways are doing extraordinarily well by global standards and by historical standards, many millions of citizens who make good choices much of the time make less good choices some of the time because the problem of navigating something is really hard. It may be a bureaucracy, it may be an employer, it might be a school system. And this is, again, not a knock on them. It's just a uh, an emphasis on the centrality of the problem of navigability to human life. Okay, so who knows better then? Because the idea of a GPS is based on, I suppose, ultimately on the kind of algorithm that would guide the GPS that you could have in your car or that guides an aeroplane. But it does assume that someone has superior knowledge. And what evidence do we have that there is collective superior knowledge that people should be quite happy to give up or water down their individual choices to embrace. The great British poet William Blake said in Marginalia, actually, to Sir Joshua Reynolds, the great artist, said, uh, this is Blake's words, to generalize is to be an idiot, to particularize is the alone distinction of true merit. And I think Blake uh, was right with respect to questions like the one you just asked. I'm going to try uh, to particularize, and and that is to avoid being an idiot. Uh, With respect to what you like to eat for lunch or dinner, uh, you are probably the best arbiter. You might not be the best arbiter about what's healthiest for you, but in terms of your enjoyment, most of the time you're going to know really well, at least if you're experienced in making food choices, and most adults fortunately are. Phew, um, so my, my lunch choice got, got away lightly. Okay, <laughs> go on. <laughs> you, might have, you might have gotten that one wrong, but most of the time the chooser knows. What's beautiful, I think, about the GPS device is that it respects people's choice of their own preferred destination. It says it's up to you where you want to go, and it also gives you a right of opt-out. It says that if you don't want the GPS's uh, recommended route, you can choose your own. And so it's freedom promoting in that way. And also it is saying that you're, the end is ultimately for you to decide. Uh, with respect to some things like how to handle an illness or how to handle a legal problem, we might have an end in mind that's pretty clear. That is, we don't want to be feeling pain or coughing. Uh, with respect to the legal system, we may want something to stop or we may want to get money in compensation for something bad that's happened to us. Uh, but we, if we're not doctors or lawyers, are probably going to be in an inferior position to a lawyer or a doctor in trying to figure that out. So the basic idea is that, and I'm trying to particularize here, for health conditions, uh, doctors are uh, experts for law, lawyers, at least much of the time. They ought to be experts. That's my job. and So I want to recognize lawyers don't always get it right. Uh, with respect to some things like food safety, governments, if they're working well, um, will have more expertise than ordinary people who are busy trying to live their lives and not trying to study carcinogens and such. And so it's in, you have to go area by area, I think, to know who's the best chooser. I have a couple of challenges to that, but I'd just like you to lay out first the extent to which what you're suggesting, you use the word navigability, which is, as you point out, has a lot of 
syllables, but is still a pretty clear word as something that you want to embrace here. How different is that then from the nudges of the book, our very famous book in public policy that you wrote with Richard Taylor? Well, there are two things I think that were kind of gaps in the book nudge. And one is the the word and the concept of navigability. And if I had it to do all over again, I would have uh, put that, if not front and center, at least give a, given it pride of position. Uh, though maybe it's better that that was a book about nudging, which is about preserving freedom of choice while also steering people in different directions. And then there's another project, which is about the related but different navigability problem. So you can have a nudge that gets people to avoid pollution or to save money or to avoid foolish health choices that doesn't necessarily solve the particular problem of navigability. So putting a spotlight on that and its relationship to freedom is what is the my current obsession, not my obsession session from 10 years ago. Uh, I also have kind of a, a, a bigger fish in mind, which is that the uh, Anglo-American political tradition, which I cherish, has been with respect to freedom as good as there is, really. The French do great. The Germans have a lot of great things to say, but the Anglo-American one is unexcelled, I think. Uh, it has not put a, uh, an emphasis on the difficulty that choosers often have in figuring out how to get where they want to go. And for John Stuart Mill, who is a complete hero of mine, and Jeremy Bentham, who is a hero too, uh, Friedrich Hayek, a great philosopher of freedom as well as economist, the, the problem of navigability, and it does have too many syllables to be the perfect word, we'd love one that was crisper, it kind of escaped their attention. And that's a, a conceptual mistake, but it also has uh, cultural, let's say, uh, after effects. Well, let me issue a slightly crude challenge on, on that point. And I know you made a great defense of the particular earlier on. Um, so we'll, we'll allow you and William Blake to have that one. <laughs> but my challenge might be that if you define navigability as broadly as you do as the book goes on, you are suggesting that overall, someone always knows better. It leads you to defensive technocrats. Would I, would I be right in saying that? In some areas, that with respect to, let's say, how to build a house, which you can see broadly as a navigability problem, most people don't know how to do that, and you want to get a, a contractor or a construction expert to help you. They are technocrats. With respect to how to get through your day, most of it is up to you and not a technocrat because you know better what you want your day to include. So one area I might have a, a challenge for you would be, are we absolutely sure where this line runs? Of course, if you cite the need for me to have an expert in to build my house or do my root canal, I'm not going to argue too much with you. But if I have a position in which a lot of people in political elite say, take the example of Brexit in the UK at the moment, well, this should really all be left to the experts. The people got it wrong in their vote. And actually, these things are much better handled by politicians, technocrats, policy experts, trade experts. Those who voted might think, well, hang on. No, I should have a say about whether Britain is in the EU or not. It's at least contestable who gets the say on that sort of issue, surely. First, I think an American should be cautious about speaking to the situation 
which is obviously very complicated. So I wouldn't want to say anything particular about a situation on which I have no expertise. So on the role of technocrats and the public in Brexit, probably the best way for an outsider to come to terms with that is to think what is the proper relationship between technical expertise and democracy in a whole host of areas. And the the answer is that ultimately in a democracy, it's up to we the people. You need institutions to be structured so that the people are adequately informed by those who know what they're talking about. Now we're talking in terms of the relationship between, let's say, popular control and technical expertise about a very challenging and extremely important question in democratic theory, uh, whose relationship to the problem of navigability, as I'm understanding it, is approximately zero. All right. Well, let's take uh, an example closer to home then. Let's look at navigability in its broadest sense when it comes to the situation in, in the United States at the moment. So in, in some ways, you seem to be saying you still think American freedom and that great sense of freedom that has driven the United States from its, its origins is still important and intact. But is it changed by the presidency of Donald Trump? think so. So uh, there's an idea of freedom where the greatest exponent is British, not American, John Stuart Mill. And that idea that if you are living your life and not harming to others, at least as a general rule, you can continue. That under President Trump, as under President Obama, is not the only component of our political culture, but is a flourishing part of our political culture. And so what would you say that, for instance, the decision-making, the process that's been very contested, very fraught in Washington and across the nation about the order to build the wall between the U.S. and Mexico? Is that a question, whether you think looking at this from a point of view of that balance of what do people understand? What do they understand about what they're being offered? What do they understand about the consequences of what they're being offered? Does that resonate with you? Uh, I worked in the Obama administration for four years full-time, and then I had part-time positions through the rest of the administration. I was an occasional advisor, and actually one of my positions continued under the Trump administration, a less-than-full-time position with the Department of Defense. Uh, With respect to the wall, if I were in the White House now, uh, I'd have many questions about it in terms of whether the benefits justify the costs. And the experts in Democratic and Republican circles both seem to think the answer is no. The benefits of the wall do not justify the costs. And the American people seem to think the answer to that question is no. So both the technical people and the ordinary people on balance um, with some dissenters think this isn't a very good idea. And uh, I'm not an expert on the wall, but I tend to be very skeptical that it's a good idea. But does that not pose a question for you about the overall truth claim or status claim of what you're arguing? That often when you break things down, you can find ways of breaking them down in which people decide that a lot of things that they've actually voted for were not really great ideas. But collectively, in aggregate, they vote for politicians, they vote in referendums one way or the other, or they vote in an election for one candidate or another. 
and Donald Trump was the candidate they voted for, and we don't yet know that they've really overall resiled from that view. So they can find bits of choice to be wrong or questionable and still want to keep on going in a direction which you might be wanting to suggest that is flawed or isn't serving them well. What do we do with that? Well, I think there are two different questions. There's one question whether in one's ordinary life, let's say one is you know, struggling economically or struggling in terms of some safety problem that one is facing at work. How do you handle that? And the problem is that freedom of choice, while extremely important, might not be adequate if you don't have the tools to answer the question, what are you going to do? And that is something that I think all nations are facing as a problem. In the United States, over 30,000 people died in road accidents last year, and that number, 30,000, is completely unacceptable. In other countries that don't have numbers quite that vivid, you still have tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. Now, that's almost literally, maybe we don't even need the word almost, a navigability problem. And the question is, what are we going to do about it? Um, So there's that. Then there's a question about democracy as a whole going in directions that some people consider to be troubling. And many Americans are not that excited about the direction the Trump administration is going in. His approval ratings aren't very high. And it's not the first time a president hasn't had high approval ratings. For some of President Trump's critics, he is in some ways uniquely concerning, some people believe. Uh, Fortunately, democratic processes have the equivalent of a GPS device there, which is you can have an election and get rid of the person. And that's coming up pretty soon. Um, Fortunately, you get rid of the person. No person, no problem, as Stalin said in a slightly more dangerous context. Do you believe that the GPS resets simply after Trump, fortunately, as you use the word? Or do you believe the GPS has been altered fundamentally by his time in office? Well, I worked, as I noted, under President Obama, and I think it's uh, gracious for people who worked for President Obama to be uh, respectful of the successor, especially publicly, and to be cautious about saying, you know, our guy was good and the new guy's terrible. I do think that just my own perspective is that in areas I know best, which is government regulation, that was my role in the Obama administration, that the Trump administration has uh, done some significant damage, especially in the area of climate change, but this is uh, fixable. Uh, We've lost some time, but these are things that can be caught up on, and I'm hopeful that that will happen. How would we know if the kind of navigability idea had gone so far that our end destinations were being determined perhaps too much for us? I mean, what would for you be a reality check on your own conviction? If you had a GPS device that when you said you want to go to London, it set you on it toward Oxford, you would know that there was a big problem. I think my GPS has done that on occasion, but anyway. <laughs> mine too. There's a friend of mine who... <laughs> it's a flawed I, metaphor like, in some ways, no? <laughs> no, completely. I had a GPS device which kept sending me to one particular friend whom I quite liked, but I didn't like him that much. And every time I'd try to go somewhere, they said, go see him. 
So if it's the case that a healthcare system is leading you to expensive and unhelpful treatments or that is leading you to treatments that overdiagnose problems or end up uh, getting you sicker, then we have a reality check. So we have to keep, keep testing whether the functional equivalent of the GPS device in life is working. If we have a job training program that is expensive and not training anybody, then we need to get another job training program or maybe stop having any job training program if we can't find one that works. If for food safety, a program is making sure that people uh, stay away from things that are uh, healthy and is leading them to things that make them sick, you get, you get the examples. So when I worked in the government, we instituted a program called Retrospective Review, by which whether it was a freedom-preserving intervention like a warning or a freedom-eliminating provision like a prohibition, we would reevaluate periodically whether the thing was working. And that's a way of checking whether in navigability cases, which a warning would be designed to be part of, whether the warning is actually helping anybody or it's doing, warning people against the right things. Assuming you think that the state can mark its own homework to that extent. Huh? Well, we, we know from data that if the government is uh, checking itself, that it can do a lot of good. In the UK, there's a behavioral insights team that has done massive good in multiple domains. And one reason is that it's, it's reality checking itself and it's uh, kind of te uh, showing its proof. And the, the showing means that if other people think it's, it's wrong, they can see what's been done and, and correct the, the claim. Uh, last thought, as we look the race to, to 2020, we're seeing a very different American politics of the kind that you left when you were associated with the Obama White House. We're also seeing a kind of resurgence of socialism, a resurgence of the left in America, but perhaps on different terms to the past. Are there any threats or worries for you about freedom and the way that it is handled there that you think is a challenge to the center? It's not clear the center is the right place to be, even though it has a kind of uh, pleasingly, what is it? Uh, and a nice anodyne uh, sort of feeling to it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you wouldn't want to be on the center, I don't think, with respect to civil rights in 1952. You'd want to be on the left with respect to feminism. By my lights, in 1975, you'd want to be on the uh, on the left with respect to the communist threat in, let's say, 1970. You want to be on the right. So, in some cases, the the center is uh, missing something important. Uh, I am concerned in the United States that our left is expressive in some cases rather than focused on the human consequences. So sometimes some of our people on the left, and I'd say Senator Sanders is the defining example, it's more like he's showing a degree of moral outrage, which is in many cases justified, but moral outrage can lead you in destructive directions that are destructive, let's say, to the prospects of poor people. If you make a minimum wage that's kind of very, very high, uh, then you're going to freeze out 
young people and poor people from the market. Now, you can probably make the minimum wage pretty high without having that adverse effects, but you always have to have your eye on the ball, what kind of unintended bad consequence are you creating. And I think that our, our expressive left, let's call it, is potentially destructive to many of its own goals. Professor Sunstein, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Great to talk to you. Would you like a GPS to guide you through your life? And where might it take you? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And please do take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts. And The Economist each week does provide a pretty good guide along the way. Subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. <laughs>